Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. On 882-6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, My guest in this episode, uh, you're going to think I'm making it up uh, when I... When I introduce her, she's a forensic biologist, uh, more specifically a forensic entomologist. What on earth is that? I hear you ask. Well, I'll I'll ask that as my first question, I think, because I'm pretty keen to know uh, myself. So she hails from Italy, uh, but she's now based here in Perth, but uh, is involved in solving criminal cases all over the world. Uh, In fact, there is even a character in the Italian version of CSI, that is based on her and her work. So it's with great pleasure I say uh, hello and welcome to Paola Magni. Firstly, have I pronounced your name right? Well. Close enough? <laughs> my name in, is Itali- in Italian is Paola. But Paola? basically now Paola is only my mum calling me when I'm in trouble. So <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> since I moved to Australia, I introduced myself as Paula. So that yep, is easier just to make for, it easy. Yes, for everyone. Very good. <laughs> um so firstly, I have to ask, what is a forensic entomologist? Well, a forensic scientist is yeah. uh, someone that uses science to solve crimes or to investigate a criminal situation. Now, a forensic entomologist is the combination of an entomologist that is um, uh, a person that study insects, but a person that study insects in, a, in the context of a criminal investigation. Right. So, so, yeah, so you bugs. apply your knowledge of insects and what bugs and creepy crawlies do to help solve a crime. Exactly. So I use bugs to investigate and to hopefully solve a case. Right. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many different cases in which bugs can be part of the investigation. Yeah. Now, we can go from uh, uh, simple cases like you go and buy yourself uh, a sandwich and you find a little cockroach in your sandwich. Mm-hmm. And this is a case that is about hygiene, is about um, yeah, accreditation of the place where you, you are going for, uh, for lunch and things like that. So kind of a basic case, very crunchy sandwich for today. <laughs> uh, or a situation in which, well, we find um, uh, a human body or an animal that has been killed in us unknown circumstances and in a natural situation you have a decomposition process that takes over and the nature takes over and in particular there are insects that are taking over because this is what normally happens Mm. to a dead body. Insects arrive and start the decomposition process, they start eating the body and uh, interestingly uh, the insects are destroying the evidence Mm. but at the same time they are retaining the information from the body itself. So I work on these. I like to say that I work on the living part of the dead scene. That's a nice way of putting it on an otherwise fairly grim and grisly situation. <laughs> what came first for you then? An interest in insects or an interest in uh, in in crime and and solving, you know, I have to say, nothing of these two, because when I started my activity and my study was about 20 years ago, and uh, there was no such a thing as CSI on TV. I was simply interested in nature, and my interest was to use nature for a purpose, 
for an application for a bigger purpose. So uh, when I found out about the possibility of using nature to solve crimes, well, I thought well, this is something very good because I can help the society somehow give inclusion to the families of a victim using maybe the weirdest yeah. of the evidence. Well, I, I'm okay with the day. So. <laughs> <laughs> so can you give us an example then, right, where you turn up to a crime scene and, and what you're able to add to the picture? Because I imagine, you know, uh, forensic entomology is a part of the puzzle. Yes, yeah? absolutely. So you're part of the team that tries yep. to sort of piece things together and, and, and solve the mystery. Yeah. Um, so can you give us an example of, you know, I don't know if you can give us a real example because obviously people are sensitive about Maybe if there's one in another, another country you can talk about. <laughs> Where you turn up to a crime scene, say a body is found, yes, and, 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 and how you've helped you know, unlock the mystery. So let's say a situation in which um, a body um, uh, has been found by someone typically walking, in, walking the dogs in the bush or looking for mushrooms. This mm-hmm. is my experience. The best people who find bodies are, is not the police. It's people walking dogs and looking mm. for mushrooms. So a body in, uh, in the bush... And uh, this body is not fresh, so you can see the body that is partially consumed by insects. You can see the bones, you can see some of the uh, clothing material, but you cannot recognize the body even if it's a male or female or something like that. The pathology, the police is going to be called at the scene. The police is going to call the pathologist. The pathologist is going to do the first assessment, and normally it calls me. Uh, because the pathologist can work on the time since death of the remains until about three days after death. The idea is that the pathologist can use signs of death like the famous rigor mortis or the algor mortis or things like that. Uh, But after three days, these signs disappear because of the temperature outside will be the same temperature of the body. So the the losing temperature is not going to work. Uh, the rigidity of the body is going to disappear. If you have bones, there is no rigidity <laughs> at all. Yeah. Uh, the color of the body, the liver mortis, is about the color of the body. Normally we are pink if Caucasians, uh, but the color changes and become everything black. But again, if you have only bones, it is what you have, no other information. So insects instead can give you information. So you can replace the information lost uh, during the decomposition using the insects. The idea is that the insects are like the sharks of the decomposition. Sharks can feel the presence of a little drop of blood in lots of water. Uh, flies, especially, instead, can feel the presence of uh, the molecular of the decomposition from in a very big space. Really? So they will reach the body and they will start the colonization, so le- laying the eggs on the body. And this can happen within 15 minutes. 15 after minutes? Death, after death. So... We have cases in which, cases and research done in this sense in which the, this colonization can start within 15 minutes. And the colonization continues. So whenever you arrive, you can backtrack when this started. And you can be even pretty precise some days. You never give a time frame like identification of the time. You always give an estimation of mm. the time that is normally a range. But within that range, the police or the pathology will investigate more Yep. So the job of the different forensic scientists and the forensic p- practitioners is not to identify the culprit, is to narrow 
the population of the people into a bunch of suspects that is less and less because of the time frame that you, ident- you estimate with the insects, because of the number of people that you ident- identify with uh, uh, DNA and things like that. So it's about narrowing mm. and then focusing. That's it. Wow. So just not to center on the on the flies and the and the, and the and the larvae and the maggots and stuff but um sorry i just have so many questions <laughs> um by the time you get there um how do you know them? i mean you said that they can they can have a, they've got a great sensitivity to to blood and they could get there in 15 minutes but they might not have gotten there in 15 minutes yes so, so how between... do you know how do you know when they when they when they first latched onto this we can go. <laughs> we can go hardcore science here. So, uh, from the moment of the death to the moment of the starting of the colonization, we have a gap of time that we called we call this PAI, so period of insect activity. Okay. So, this period that is longer or shorter is based on factors like uh, ecological factors, chemical factors, and physical factors. Like, and this is about uh, ecological. It's it's winter. Flies fly less, so this gap can be longer. Right. In summer, it's it's flies are everywhere. This gap is gonna be shorter. Chemical factors. If uh, I kill my boyfriend and I spray it with mortain, probably this gap is gonna be longer because mm. the fly will avoid the body until the the body itself is gonna be clean from the um, from the from the mortain because there is an evaporation of that. Mm. Uh, um, what about um, Physical factors, if I bury the body, they're going to take a longer time. But if the mm. body is in the surface, completely naked in summer, then it's going to be easier. So it's about the expert having all the information about the, f- the biology and the ecology of the insects and the full information about the, uh, the crime scene itself to work out this time. It can be longer or shorter. So that the time can be even before the death event. Because if I shoot you or I stab you and I leave you there, nearly dead but not dead, mm. this lesion, this wound, can start the decomposition process itself because, because you can't move and it's available to flies. Mm. So we had cases in which the colonization started even before the death event. Goodness so me. the insect can give you all the information about that. We had a very sad case about an old woman that was um, uh, in the bed with uh, diabetic sores and things like that and was not looked after by her tutor and uh, we had the decomposition starting before, and then she died, and we had all the story told by the insects. That's the, just the thought of that is turning my stomach inside out. You must have a very strong stomach. Well, I mean, my to most people, are... even just hearing about it, they're like, whoa, this is, a, this is full on. Well, it's when, bugs, when... and uh, I know I work on nasty animals, but <laughs> people I think are nasty animals. I think the crime is nasty. And my animals well, are actually cute because no they're actually that. helping us out. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about my work is that my customers do not complain. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to work in customer service, I would not be that good. Uh, on that note, we need to take a break. After that, I want to ask you about, um, just out of curiosity, about our flies, because we're pretty famous for our flies here in Australia. Yep, How do our always. flies compare to Italian flies? That'll be my next question. Coming up after the break, this is Inspiring Stories uh, with Paola Manu, forensic entomologist on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan 
on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Paola Munya. She's actually based at Murdoch University, but she hails uh, from Italy originally. And I'm going to ask you, I have to ask you about the Italian version of CSI. You probably get sick of being asked about it, right? <laughs> Um, but look, it's such a such a popular show all around the world. Can I just ask you about flies, though? I'm curious to know how our flies compare to Italian flies because we're pretty famous for our flies. Oh yeah, in Australia, absolutely. Right? Uh, basically, you... I'm in Australia for the flies now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the koalas. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's probably the weirdest reason for you to come to Australia. But was was the flies part of it? Were you curious about our flies? Well. Um... I'm curious about the different kind of environments and different kind of ecological yeah. situations. So uh, coming to Australia was, uh, wow, that's very interesting. You have flies all year round. Rather mm. than in Italy, I was coming from the north of Italy. That can be pretty cold. We have snow basically from from December to March. So it's a pretty long period of very cold weather in which flies basically do not fly. And and so so it's very interesting to have the population of flies all year round. And you have differences in different seasons. You have differences in the different um, uh, entomological uh, kind of assessment, uh, depending on if in the city, if outside of the city, you have different kind of group of insects coming at different stages of the decomposition. Uh, you have species that we don't have. Mm. You also have species that we have. So there are species that we consider worldwide present and they can give always information. But some species are only from here and sometimes only from Western Australia. Mm. So, yeah, this is very interesting because you can use forensic entomology to estimate the time since death, but you can also estimate if a body was moved from a place to another. Ah. So um, if I find a body in the bush that has insects that are normally not in the bush, this can give me an information about mm, maybe we have to investigate a little bit more about the chance of this body was somewhere or somewhere else. And also, for very old cases in which we cannot be very preci- precise in the in the estimation, if we have the remains of insects that are part of the typical fauna of the summer, of the winter, we can say, well, this body actually yep. has been placed here in a winter season. We don't know which year, but the winter season. Uh, we we jump into something that we call archaeoentomology, that is the combination of archaeology and entomology, so very old, old cases. We work on that on uh, Egyptian pyramids. We can find information about that or when we find remains of uh, world worlds or some sort everywhere in the world. Yeah. We can work out when the, the soldier or this pharaoh died and what happened after. So mm. it's interesting. We can, it's not forensically important because the case probably has been closed but um it's interesting from from historical point of view yeah, absolutely. and um, yeah to give a full picture of the story well can i ask then um you know the, we've seen bits and pieces of mh370 uh that have washed up on beaches uh, in various parts of the world yeah. um could you glean something from those is there is there information on those parts of the plane that have been found that might give you clues as to where it might be? So the idea is that we're now moving from the terrestrial environment to the aquatic environment. Mm. Now, uh, while in the fresh water we can find insects, in uh, seawater ocean we find very, very small insects and not in the deep ocean like where the the MH370 will probably be. Said that, we have another bunch of animals that can be very interesting. And I'm talking about arthropods that are still 
group uh, is, is the bigger group of the uh, in which insects are part of and what are crustaceans so crustaceans yeah. are the reciprocal insects in aquatic environment yeah. in the ocean so when the uh, MH370 was a uh, part the wings were found uh, if you see the, I, I didn't have the chance to look after that, but I can see the pictures on uh, on the web, and you can see that the wing is covered by barnacles. Yeah, uh, barnacles are very interesting because you can identify the species, and the species will give you information about where these species come from, where the attachment of these species on the wing happened. Is probably the place where the the wing come from, so we can backtrack the journey from where the the, the wing come from as well. The size of the barnacle can give you the information about from how long these uh, pieces in the water and from how long the barnacles are colonized that. Can I ask though, how do you know how big the barnacle was when it first latched onto the, that, in this case, piece well, of there, there were no, Well, there were no barnacles at the beginning, beginning, because barnacles are only in water. So Yeah, but so when you're looking at it though, like, and you, you're seeing how big the barnacle is now, mm-hmm. How do you know how big it would have been when it first attached to the plane? Because it was a larvae in the plankton, so it was no big at all. It was okay. a few right. cells. Very Sorry, is that a dumb question? Well, <laughs> it's very um, yeah. a biological philistine question. Right, a biological philistine. I've not been called that before. That's a new one. I'll write that down. Thank you. Sorry, continue. So, um, so, in these, so barnacles, uh, uh, when they're baby barnacles, they're yeah. no small seashell okay. sort of. Right. Uh, as we can see when uh, when we see the barnacles on the kilo board or on the bottles of the message in the bottles and things, yeah. they are just mm, small uh, planktonic larvae that we cannot Tiny. see if we don't yeah, yeah if we don't have a microscope. Yep. These planktonic larvae are actually very nice. They have little antennas. <laughs> These antennas touch surfaces and they will touch the surfaces and they will decide which one is the is the best place to turn up the body and attach forever. Mm. Now, so they had to be very careful. Think ab- think like a barnacle. <laughs> when you're touching the surface, this is this is going to be your forever home. Yeah. So you have to find a good place to stay. That has to be the place for forever time. So they don't move away. They move around. Yeah. So when they attach, they stay. And when they start, they, when they stay, they start growing because they eat. So we can backtrack from the size and the temperature of the water from how long they are actually there. There are tables of growth, not for all the species, but we can work out things because barnacles are very well studied for many other reasons, yeah. ecological reasons especially, and uh, they are considered a pest, especially for oil and gas and things. So there are many studies about that. Mm. Not much studies about the use of them in criminal investigation. There are a few studies, two are done by me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is a new ve- venture for, uh, for criminal investigation, barnacles. To the best of your knowledge, have they asked a forensic entomologist to look at the parts of MH370 that have been found? They asked some marine biologists, okay. and um, I believe they did the best work they can do. And um, if they need more help, I'm yeah. available. <laughs> Give you a call. Yeah. <laughs> right. Can we ask? I need to ask you about Italian CSI. So, um, just to refresh people's memories, if they're thinking, what is CSI? I'm sure you've heard this thing. <laughs> I see the head in hand there. <laughs> um, so there's a character that is based on you in Italian CSI. Yes. Correct? Yes. Um, and you also 
do some consulting, yeah, yeah, for the people who are putting the stories together. Yeah. Can I ask you firstly, when you watch CSI, it, I mean, it's obviously very heavily science-based um, and methodical from my point of view for, as a viewer. And if I watch it, it seems like it's pretty plausible science. Is, does the science stack up in those shows? Is it good science? So there is a no written rules that says that we cannot provide to the audience uh, some uh, the wrong science. Right. Uh, so what we provide to the audience is something that is like pushed to the reality uh, science. Mm. So uh, we don't consider the fact that science needs time. Like yeah. for example, if I collect some flies on the some maggots on, on a case, I need to uh, breed these flies until they get to the adult stage, yeah. uh, so that I can uh, double check the, the the identification of the species considering the maggot and the adult. Now this can take up twenty days or something. Yeah. You can't wait for that time in a show. <laughs> so they pretend that you are able to identify the species even looking not even at the microscope. You take the the, the maggot with a little forceps. You look at that maybe. If you're very lucky with a magnifying lens and you already say the species name, mm. surname and address and things like that. Mm. Um, this is normally not possible. Uh, as an entomologist with lots of experience myself, I can nearly say that, but I cannot do that in the court of law. So I had to use the microscope. I had to confirm the species, uh, consider the full growth and, uh, and things. Same story with DNA. Yeah. They put the little sample. The sample always work, and you have all those match found, match found coming from the computer. No, you have to do a little bit more work than that. Same story with the fingerprints and things. So we just push the science to the limit, mm-hmm. and and that's it. But we actually provide the right science. Great. Well, it's good to know. Yeah. It's not only entertaining, but it's it's scientifically correct it's correct. as well. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to people like you. Um, I've got to ask that the character that is you in the show is Japanese? Yes, yes. So the show's in Italian. She speaks Italian, but she's Japanese, right? She's Japanese. So she was born in Italy by from two from the parents, both Japanese. Yeah. They were, um, I think, two uh, musicians. They were uh, playing at the Rome Opera Symphony or something like that. And she was born and raised in a very artistic family. So she became an actress. And she's pretty famous in Italy. She did a few shows, but and they decided for her because she was a little bit more exotic. I guess my science is a bit exotic, so it was a, <laughs> was a good choice. And um, so it's funny because I, I was living in Italy at that stage and I was doing everything in Italian, apart from research and publications in English. But now I find myself to be very close to her because um, in the show, they decided that uh, she was talking in Italian with mm-hmm. everyone, but she was talking in Japanese with the, the with the flies, just to have kind of a personal relationship with the <laughs> flies when she was in lab and she was petting these little maggots and things. And now I find myself doing the same here. I speak with everyone in English, but I speak in Italian in the lab <laughs> with the flies. So you speak to the bugs in Italian? Absolutely. <laughs> we have our di- small little dirty secrets in Italian with yeah, the flies. That's great. <laughs> Um, and and it's, are you still involved with the the story writing of the uh, shows? They, they, they finished, they did eight seasons and, yeah. uh, and then they closed the show. Uh, yeah. I'm still very close to the people that were working there mm. and things. And uh, and I think they are still showing the, the series in Italy. Yeah. But yeah, the job has been done and dusted. Yeah, okay. We need to take a break, Paola. Um, after that, though, I want to ask you how to do the perfect crime, how to execute the perfect crime. Now I'm going to kill you. Not, not that I'm <laughs> – you'll have to kill me. Well, maybe I'll put it on you. If, you're gonna, if you were going to murder someone, Paola, we're getting a little bit uh, grim here. How would you do it? 
okay. I'm not sure that this is ethically right for me to be asking this question, but well, I'm going to ask it anyway because it's probably my one and only chance. Well, everyone stay tuned. <laughs> this is Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. Dr. Paola Manye is our special guest in this episode. Um, can I ask you, I, I'm conscious of, of being <laughs> unethical here, but maybe I'll just ask it this way. Is there such a thing as the perfect crime that cannot be solved by... Uh, the expertise and the technology that we currently have. Now, you consider the fact that we have this technology and the experts to yep. to solve a case, but there are places in which these uh, this is not available. So probably a perfect crime is is going to happen when there is an imperfect uh, investigation because of lack of technology, lack of um, lack of space to do a proper investigation, lack of experts and things like that. So the best crime can be committed somewhere where these uh, possibilities are not available. Mm. Now, okay. But it, it, in, a, in a country or region where the very best is available? Well... What... Is, okay. is there still, is there still a, you know, a, a crime or a scenario that is still beyond our means to solve, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt? Um. If you had the right lawyer, <laughs> they can they can plant the reasonable doubt in the jury. Yeah. So this yeah. is the point. The, pers- the more than the perfect crime, you have to have the perfect lawyer in yeah. some cases. Yeah. If you have the availability to pay this kind of lawyer, um, well, you can get yeah. away with murder. Get away with anything. Now we are in a stadium today, yeah. and I'm gonna. I would like to tell you a story. Sure. <laughs> so perfect crime talking, and yeah. um, so. Two thousand and six, we found this. Uh, we found this uh, body, and uh, the investigation took us to um, a specific sus- uh, suspect that um, that probably committed the, the 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 murder. Now, the body was found in the middle of the city, uh, wrapped in a in a blanket and covered by by a carpet. So, it was con- was called the crime of the carpet or the murder of the carpet. So, very very fantasy. Uh, now, the insect allowed us to. To, to kind of narrow the, the time since that in a range of days. There was, I don't know, 14, 12 to 14 days and blah, blah, blah. Uh, this suspect was um, was uh, in- investigated and was questioned. And at the end, he, he said, okay, I did it. I was, lo- I, I was in love with her. I could not have her. I got mad and blah, blah, blah. I killed her. And, um, but we knew that this guy didn't have a car. And it's also said that the, the crime, the, the murder happened in, at the house of this girl. And we said, how did you move the body from the apartment to the, uh, to the place that the body was found? And he said, well, using my bicycle. Uh, well, in, nobody saw you with this big package, with very weird package on, on your bike. Oh, nobody was around that night. Mm. And when did it happen? It was perfectly in the range of the days. We, but we worked out the days, and that was the night in which Italy was playing France at the Soccer World Cup in <laughs> Berlin. So everyone was actually watching TV that night, or yeah. they were in Berlin actually cheering for Italy. They actually won that night, so nobody <laughs> could care about him that night. So we are in a stadium. We have derbies. So per people, probably the best night is the derby day. 
Okay, <laughs> okay. Taking notes, taking notes. <laughs> so timing is obviously important if you want to reduce the number of, of witnesses being around. What? what about at the actual crime scene? Are the things you can do at a crime scene that would throw someone like you off guard? Well, what I keep saying is that uh, if you are a killer, you can control yourself, especially if it's not like a crime of passion that happens from a day to an, a moment of anger or a moment of passion or something like that. Uh, you can plan your your, uh, your murder, doing the best things possible, cover yourself and things, but uh, you can't control the environment. The yeah. environment somehow will take over. Uh, in forensic science, we we always consider the, a rule that is called the principle of exchange of Locard. Locard was a geologist uh, in, in France, and he said every contact leaves a trace. Now, the contact can be between the victim and the culprit, the victim and the suspect, the victim and the murderer, or the victim and the environment, or the environment and the, um, and, and the culprit. And there is always a way to put together these people in the specific place mm. at the specific time. Um, not all the environments have been studied. Not all the insects have been studied. So there is always the possibility that we have the clue, but we cannot justify the clue. We cannot put the clue in the context. But maybe in the future, we can reopen cases that have been not solved mm. because the technology and the advancement of the research will be at that stage. There are many cases of miscarriage of justice that are now uh, fixed because now we know things. Now we had the technology to get the DNA from just a small, small amount of cells Back in the days, we used to have a lot. Mm. I have a very good friend in, uh, in America who sold a, a case of miscarriage of justice of a person that was uh, in prison for 10 years. And the only evidence they put him in, in the context of the investigation was some bite marks that he left on the victim. And this guy finally found that in the specific place where the body was found, there were like crayfish. And they left marks. They were looking like bite marks. So this guy was in prison for 10 years because of crayfish. And, wow. the, and nobody knew that there were these crayfish in this area. So we don't know what, can, what the future can bring in yeah. this direction. And this is the, the importance of forensic science. Uh, investigation comes together with forensic science. And forensic science is science. So we have to do research. We have to focus on doing research that is not blue sky science. It's something that has to be planned on purpose to solve cases to give more insight about what's going on in the specific environment in the in, in the context of the different yeah. investigation so it's, it's very important how important is it is it for you to keep up with um, changes in environment then you know when you talk about destruction of environment uh, which obviously can change the the, the mix-up of species as part of that environment, um, yeah, we have does, a few. Does that help or hinder what you <laughs> it's do? A, it's very important to keep up on what's going on in the environment and keep uh, having the track of what's what, what is there and what is not. Because yeah. um, in in our when we talk about my type of science, is about environmental correlation. Mm. You have to correlate the samples and the evidence to the environment using pre with using present data. If the data are not updated, you are doing a wrong correlation. We have a few publication, uh, scientific uh, publication about globalization of evidence. Things that were not there are now everywhere. Uh, we, and especially with my little bugs, you, they can be moved from place to place because they can come also uh, together with food and things like that. So 
my my work is very close to the biosecurity work mm. and see what's going on at the, at the customs uh, situation because we can import insects that can maybe be uh, at the at the scene of the investigation at some point. Mm. And um, yeah, and with all of these um, new buildings and new areas, we had to check what's going on. Mm. We need more people to do research. <laughs> I've got to ask this is this is a fairly lowbrow question here, but you know most people uh, keep a, a, a tin of insecticide or whatever in the in the cupboard at home. Where if a cockroach comes out or a fly comes out, they'll reach for a spray and try to kill it. Yeah, are you one of those people? If they're in your home, do you do you let them live and prosper in your home, or do you <laughs> do you want them out like everyone else? I try to don't have too many bugs at home. But it's, in, in Australia, it's pretty difficult, but. Um, what I keep saying to my students is that if you want to kill a fly, just look the fly in the eyes because if the eyes are separated, it's going to be a female. And some of the female flies in Australia, as soon as they kill it, they release the maggots. So you kill one fly, but you will have your house full of thousands of maggots. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> look the fly in the eye. Yeah, so the difference between male and female is in the flies. You can yeah. see them through the eyes. Okay. The eyes can be attached to each yeah. other and you have a boy. Right. Okay, boy fly. Boy flies, the eyes are attached to yes, it. Well. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah. And the females, the, the, the eyes are, the, yeah. there is a space, a gap between the eyes. Right. So if you have a fly that is a female, in many species, especially in Australia, the species are larviparous. So they make larvae. They, they basically give birth to living larvae. And, right. and when they feel very scared or afraid or they are nearly dying, what they do for the last thing in their life is, okay, I release my baggots. Because if I die, maybe I have I give the chance of surviving to my babies. So you kill one fly that is annoying, yeah. but you will have lots of maggots to deal with. <laughs> God, so even careful. in the insect world, that maternal instinct well, is so strong. I call it karma. <laughs> there you go. So look it in the eye if you get a chance. That's the, that's the hot tip. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. We need to take a break. We'll be back with more on 882 6PR very soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Story. We are hearing the inspiring story of Dr. Paola Mani in this episode. Uh, someone who applies her uh, incredible knowledge of uh, insects to help uh, piece together criminal puzzles. Um, can I ask you firstly, how does someone you know, with your level of expertise uh, end up moving from Italy to Perth? What brought you here? Well, I'm I guessing was doing, it wasn't the flies. Yeah, well, I'm talking about a few years ago. It was uh, 2010. I was doing my PhD based yep. at the University of Turin in Italy. And, um, well, in e- forensic entomologists in the world are 250 in total. So there's about 250 of, of, yes. of people with your level of expertise. Yeah, yeah. In, so in probably even less at this stage yeah. because uh, it's very difficult to find a job as a forensic entomologist. <laughs> yeah. uh, they cannot put you in a box. You're not a forensic scientist with a very, yeah. very, very popular science like uh, like DNA or, or or chemistry. You're doing entomology, and so it's it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I was in Italy, and I was. Uh, practitioner in forensic entomology i was uh, running a lab for the health service in a mortuary so my day used to start with two autopsies and see what's going on for the rest of the day and um sure uh, yeah like, like everyone's can, day can sure. only improve you know after two <laughs> autopsies in, in the morning anything can be better than that so, yeah so um, 
I was doing my PhD and I realized that, well, uh, this is what I already know what to do and nobody can teach me anything here. Yeah. So I need to fly somewhere and find somebody who can teach me. So back in the days... Um, at UWA, there was the Center for Forensic Science. There was the, one of the core of forensic science in the world. Right. And I was lucky enough to have met the, the director of the center that was a forensic entomologist, still a forensic entomologist, Professor Ian Dader. And uh, he will call me into the center and he offered me a, an internship for uh, the PhD. So I came here for the first time in 2010. Right. I fell in love with, uh, with the city and... Um, I had to come back to, to, to Turin to finish my PhD. And then in 2013, there was a, a, possi- a possibility for a postdoc, and I came back. And then uh, I stayed there for about a year and a half. I moved to the industry to check what's going on in the industry. And then I said, no, oh, I'm actually like the life of an academic. And yeah. there was a um, possibility of Murdoch. Uh, so I applied for a job at Murdoch University and now a, f- a senior lecturer in forensic science at Murdoch University. And uh, I'm loving it because um, there is so much to do in forensic science in Australia and yeah. in Western Australia. So my goal is really to um, to to make Perth and Murdoch University a center of excellence yeah. in, uh, in forensic science, in forensic entomology, in aquatic forensics and everything that I can look after. And then I have great colleagues that do DNA, chemistry, and uh, CSI, so we can really be a very good group that can uh, drive the future of forensic science in Australia and in the world. So do you get called up from time to time then by uh, a police force uh, either around Australia or around the world to say, hey, we could do with your expertise? Does that yes, happen? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm um, guessing you can't talk about anything you're doing at the moment. <laughs> uh, I can't talk about what's going on in Australia at the moment, but um. Just recently, I've been called by Malaysian uh, police yeah. uh, to help out in a case that involves entomotoxicology, that is the hybrid uh, science between entomology and toxicology. Uh, so basically, when a body is highly decomposed, the typical chemical inf- chemical analysis to identify the presence of drugs or poison can, can give too many po- false positive or false negative results. But the insects can be the next most important information that you can get because the insects are what they eat. So if they eat a body that was uh, they died because of an overdose, you can get the information of the drug through the insects. So we are working on that case uh, in, um, in Malaysia. And, um, yeah, some more cases from all over the places, actually, because yeah. we're not that many. So uh, I can, I'm happy to give a mm. hand uh, and, and, and waiting for the call from the uh, MH370 investigators. Always available. Well. Happy <laughs> to help. Um, tell me about this uh, this smartphone app that you uh, designed, <laughs> the, the Smart Insects Forensic Entomology. What's what's all that about? So the idea is that it's very um, – so uh, police force, uh, sometimes they have some updates of what's going on in the forensic science world, uh, but not enough or – or maybe they have one um, class in forensic entomology at some point in their life and maybe they don't remember what to do when they're at the scene, maybe after years or months they, they did this course. So we put together this app that uh, instead of having a manual in their pocket, they have the smartphone. The mm. app is all completely offline. As, as soon as you download it, you have that there. You open the app, you have crime scene, you click crime scene, you have different possibilities. The body is hanging underwater, is buried, is on the surface. What do I have to do? It's a flowchart that gives you information. And the other thing is that it gives you information in the language that you speak. Right. So the app is 
in uh, Chinese Mandarin, is in Portuguese, is in English, is in Italian, is in Hungarian. Is that we have, I think, ten different languages that has been have been developed by myself because I likely speak two languages, but also by a bunch of forensic entomologist colleagues that found this idea pretty good. So mm. they helped me to translate this uh, this app in their own language. So. You download the app from your phone, wherever you are, it's going to be in that language. The police cannot be bothered translating from English, and some people do not know English. Mm. So uh, it's better to have the information quick as possible mm. on the scene, what to do. So it's a mini manual on your app. Yeah, and, and potentially quite helpful. Yeah, yeah. So in there a, is a, also. A scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had a few emails from that, and uh, we received many calls um, from, from the app. and... Uh, people just say, we use that, thank you very much, uh, change the course of the investigation. So, yeah, yeah. done job. Um, just quickly, because we're, we're running out of out of time here. Time flies, time flies. right? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are the FameLab National Final Winner and the Audience Choice uh, recipient for 2019. For those who don't know what FameLab is, and don't be modest here, um, <laughs> what is it? FameLab is a science communication um Yes, it's a science communication competition yeah. uh, in which you have to uh, show to the public, to the audience, your science, uh, not using a PowerPoint, not using any jargons, and maybe pro- uh, using some props, and in only three minutes. So you had to explain what you do, your research, or your passion and things, and they had to understand, and they had to love it, and apparently they love what I did. <laughs> so, Very good. Um, can I ask, is there, there's such an appetite for watching crime dramas on TV. It just seems to have exploded in recent years. I mean, I've, we've talked about CSI and how popular that is. That's probably the most recognised uh, TV show of its kind around the world. But there are so many. You just have to jump onto Netflix or whatever. And there are so many either movies, shows or documentaries about it. Why do you think humans have this... I don't want to say morbid fascination with it because mm. it's not morbid to you. You love flies and you love yeah, maggots and bugs. It's in the nature of man yeah. to be to be curious, uh, to be uh, to take t- challenges. And an investigation is a challenge, yeah. and is a is a brain challenge because you have to solve a case. There are pieces of the puzzles, and it's about intelligence of the person to find the connection between things. And uh, um, so. It's it's many people like to play Lego. Mm. Lego is, uh, you know, what is the final, uh, the yeah. final thing of the Lego? It's gonna be an, 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 an I don't know a car or a train, and in the same same thing for the investigation. The end is the closure of the case and find the murderer. But you have to find the connections, the right blocks to put things together. And maybe you need help, and you need help from a specific expert or a specific medical doctor and things like that. So I think it's all about what men are curious. Uh, looking for collaboration, looking for communication, and looking for being smart and challenged. Mm. So I think forensic science put everything together. Plus there is science involved and there is people involved. Mm. You can be a a scientist and do criminological things, or you can be a psychologist and work in criminology, like criminal minds. So I think it's great for human beings. Final question. Could you commit the perfect crime? Could you do it? Could you fall... All of the experts that are around at the moment, could, could you do it, Dr. Manuel? For the right amount of money? Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but scientifically, you could, you could cover your tracks? Do you reckon? Well, 
I can do my best. <laughs> <laughs> for a fee. That's perhaps a conversation for another time. Yeah. I make it sound like I've got some, some heinous criminal act in my mind that I want to commit and get away with. I promise you I don't. I promise yeah. you I don't. Let's have a coffee later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's Thank been you very much for having me. Uh, this has been uh, Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR with Dr. Paola Manny from Murdoch University. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.